0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of
1: SideQuest. Good morning, Slava. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you feeling this fine Kamori morning? Mmm, gray, miserable, salty. Yeah. Pickled. Feel like stabbing somebody? Maybe the stiletto. Perhaps. Perhaps. Mm. You can call me Lucas Fairwhite for short. Lucas <laughs> Stabwhite. That's right. Oh man. So we're back on the coastal city of Camorra, Camorri. And I think everybody's crazy in the city. That's pretty much my takeaway. It's eat or be eaten. That's for sure. Uh, yes, uh, that too. But everybody's insane also.
0: I think the word is the bourgeoisie. Is that
1: right? Well, the no, <laughs> the bourgeoisie. Well, what are you trying to say? The bourgeoisie are like the rich. The it's rich, like, you know, right. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So it's the rich that are crazy because we don't see the the paddlers. And the, I mean, we see... One, Gilded Lily, and we see, like, this drunk guy
1: and whoever he's with. Okay. Uh, I present to you, Your Honor, an evidence box A, Bug, who's an insane kid.
0: Yeah, but he's the special kid that got adopted
1: by a gang of thieves. Yes, uh, but my point still stands. Every character we meet is slightly uh, off, in the best of ways, but slightly off their rocker.
0: All right. I, I mean... I don't have a lot of evidence to prove you otherwise because we don't see the average person walking around. We only see the crazy people. So, I mean, evidence-wise, I can't really combat that. I just think that in the world itself, there have got to be some average folks who are not thieves going around because they're stealing these things from someone. They're stealing stuff from people. Well, not the Gentleman Bastards, but the other gangs that we are alluded to. And there's a whole other world. Anyway, sure, everyone in Kamor is crazy. That's fine. All right, you win one point for Slava.
1: Thanks, everybody, for joining us on Side Quest. <laughs> Make sure to click that subscribe button. <laughs> so you um, never miss a side quest. So you never miss a points quest
0: because that's all we're doing is points. <laughs> oh man, that's gonna. That's yeah. That's great. So what skill? If you could pick a skill to be good at, would you pick to become a really great thief? What's your top skill that you'd want to be known for?
1: Oh. That is an excellent question. I think since for my job since I do planning and execution of products and stuff, I think I would want to be the like the main con like the guy who plays the, I don't know what the right term for it is. The main ruse, if you will.
0: Okay. You want to be Lucas Fairwhite. You want to be the, the front hand. its I feel like there's a name for it that I can't remember.
1: Or or this a close second and maybe even a tie, uh, which I know is not necessarily answering your question the way you want it. But I'm also a good second in command. So... Maybe, maybe Slava McStabby when things need to be stabbed. If we're putting ourselves in a Kamora, I
0: feel like you would enjoy being a Jean-like character. I think that you, I think you'd have more fun with that than you would being the front runner, the 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 front hand.
1: Yeah, yeah this is true. I'm, I'm glad we talked it out. Uh. <laughs> 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 because I don't want to be fair white. and I, I don't necessarily wanna i don't necessarily want to do that, although I think the planning of it would be very interesting, but I think where I thrive is you are correct and I even said it the second in command the the enforcer uh, I make yeah. a good enforcer because even in the real world outside of any you know silliness, I have always been and by always i mean I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. A lot of times more than I can count in situations, whether it was in um, a church situation, in a committee situation in a work situation, happened last week. I was made the enforcer of you know a project. So they named you an enforcer at work, named me and gave me a, gave me a couple of assignments, which I enforced and executed. Did you get a pair of wicked sisters? Yes, yes. <laughs> You paused there. I'm not sure if those are people or weapons. Yes.
0: They gave you the key to the lockbox?
1: Yeah. They gave me one person with two weapons. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying anymore.
0: That's that's fair That's fair enough. Your, your job sounds way more fun than mine does. They don't give me any weapons. Maybe I should submit for that. Excuse me, management. I'd like to submit to purchase a few battle axes for work purposes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And a lockpick set. Make sure that they're like medieval, like wacky weapons too. Not just like a battle axe, a thing that's too tame. Like a mace or something, just something that's unusual. What's the most unusual weapon that you're aware of? Just off the top of your head, no research involved. Off the top of my head, I think would be a mace because it's a stick with a chain and a spike ball.
0: So that's actually a morning star. that's not a mace. A mace doesn't have a chain? A mace is just like a stick with a ball and spikes. You're talking oh. about a morning star, which is the ball with spikes has a chain between the stick and the thing. That's a morning star. I think the craziest weapon that I'm aware of is a chain whip or a rope dagger, which I don't think it's actually called a rope dagger. But people who like use scorpions these the weapon. I think so. Okay, I where anyway. I'll show you videos of it later, but um. I personally prefer... videos something... of yourself in your backyard? Don't, like a makeshift... don't, don't pretend you've been on my computer. <laughs> don't <laughs> haven't pretend even? like you know what my YouTube channel's secret, you know... Anyway, my preference for a weapon is a halberd. Because you get reach, and then you also get a blade at the end. So, that's my... Or even a double-sided halberd, where the back end is a mace, and the front end is a blade. Anyway, cool. What's your favorite weapon, folks? You tell us, or favorite weird weapon? That's not like a gun or something like so, more medieval. Like stick to the book, okay? Stick to
1: the book. So, 15th century Venice. If you were there and you needed to enforce a thing or rearrange somebody's kneecap, what would you use? The Wicked Sisters, of course. But the audience. I want to know what the audience. Oh, would right, use. right, 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 right.
0: All right, you salty adventurers, make sure you never miss a podcast by smashing that subscribe button, or you'll lose out on
1: your share of the treasure that lies ahead. Today on SideQuest. Indeed. All right. So, as we open this act, it seems that Locke's fairway plan... Locke's luck has run out. Might be running out. Is running out. His plan is coming undone. Because Donna Sofia Salvara goes to see Donna Vercenza to ask for help regarding this uh, Lucas Fairwhite problem. And surprise, surprise, the old Vercenza is the spider. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose is apt or not surprising.
0: There's no sort of foreshadowing that takes place, far as I'm aware to no. lead us to this, but it lines up well with the story to to give us you know another upped ante, right? Because Danya Sophia ended up doing what the what Lucas Fairwhite, well, sorry, what um, the fake spider, Locke, had said, where it's like Lucas Fairwhite ends up, or the Thorn of Kamor ends up screwing people because they're too embarrassed to come out and say it, and so she breaks it
1: he didn't play the spider he played a midnighter midnighter yeah yeah that's thank you for the correction that's what i meant so
0: but she she broke the embarrassment is like hey i've got a problem which led to this thing which i think is a really fun storytelling element where it's like okay the thorn of kimura has stolen from all these other people but they're too embarrassed to say something and far as I know, this is the biggest heist that they've done to date. Like, single heist that offers the most amount of reward.
1: Yes. And so I think that they just got a little too big for their britches. Log's downfall, or his Achilles uh, he- heel, is his hubris. Mm-hmm. Always. So. Always, always. After that,
0: the... So after we find out about the spider and donya Forcenza and Dania Sofia, the Gentleman Bastard's find themselves in a piss-poor situation, pun intended, (laughs) where Locke and the Gentleman Bastards need to find a way to get Locke out of his fealty. So, fealty is when you swear your allegiance to a higher power, or uh, a lord, or a king, or a duke. And so, with these thieves guilds, they have sort of a fealty to whoever the kappa is over a So, the Gentleman Bastards have a fealty to Kappa Versavi that if he ever calls on them for some reason, they need to show up, which is what happens. And he says, I need you to come help me deal with the Great King. And Locke is like, yes, I'd love to do that. I don't have anything else going on that night. Plot twist. The Grey King also wants him to show up and pretend to be the Great King. You could say that they're
1: up Piss Creek without a battle. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch, but we'll give it to you. Well, you know, I, I, I'm... I do the best I can with what I got. Mm, mm -hmm. I spent all my energy on making urine jokes in the first uh, episode we did. And so at this point... That's right, you did.
0: Yeah, You did. So they end up coming up with a, a scheme. It's not more of a ruse, it's a scheme where Locke needs to be visibly sick enough that he literally can't attend. So they get him some sort of like Ipecac that just puts him down. And then when... Barsavi's men come. They're like, hey, we need to go. And Locke is like, all right, I'm coming. And they're like, whoa, you can't come. You're terrible. Jean, take care of him. Are you sure we can still? No, 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 take care of him. Which gives him the excuse of like, hey, it's time to, it's like they're out of the first situation, but now that Locke needs enough energy to cover the second situation, which is go be the great king. This is a fun level of ante that was upped, right? Like you need to be in two places at once and you don't have a choice. Because both powers are trying to get you to help their side out, and you're stuck in the middle. And you can't just tell either of them no.
1: Right, because both powers will kill you.
0: In different terrible ways. Yes. So, so. what what happens when
1: Locke ends up going to be the Grey King? Locke does what he does best. He plays the Grey King. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly we realize that Locke's been f- by the Grey King. Oh, yeah. And as soon as that guy started coming closer to Locke, he was just some guy who Barsavi said, hey, you're going to die in a couple of months because he got this disease. Why don't you go try touching the Grey King? And we'll find out really if the Bond's mage is protecting him completely or is just protecting him from you know daggers and swords and arrows. So this guy starts coming towards Locke. And at that point, I was like, ah, the Bondsmaid's not going to protect him. Mm-hmm. Grey King is trying to kill Locke. And lo and behold, guy touches Locke. Nothing happens. Locke gets the living snod beat out of him. Yep. And pickled in some horse urine,
0: mm. which is
1: always fun. Delicious. And Ooh. good thing he passed out right away, because I think I would have too. So Jean and Bug save him. They end up making their way back to their hideout. And we find out that the twins are dead. Which is very sad. Yeah. So big ruse from the the
0: Bonds Mage and the Great King that they're going to deal with both their problems at once, convincing Kappa Barsavi that the Great King is dead, and really luring him in to throw a party celebrating, which then brings all of his people together to allow the Great King to actually wipe them out, which was his bigger plan. Which I didn't see that coming the first time I read this. It's just fun when there's like this really brilliant scheme. That takes place from the bad guy, where you go, oh, hey, he got what he wanted, and then wait, oh, he actually had a different plan. I really enjoyed that sort of, it's not really a twist, it's just like a revelation of new information,
1: right? Yeah, well, the ante keeps going up. We can't overstate or overuse that phrase. No, Because it just continues to build up. You find the twins dead, and then Bug gets a bolt to the throat. Yeah, poor Bug. They break the knees of the assassin, burn him alive, which is always fun. Good on Locke and John. After all this, they leave. They try to find a new hideout. Locke goes to see the celebration that Barsavi's having for having killed the Grey King and won. Mm -hmm. Shit hits the fan there. And Locke passes out in the middle of the street. And you're like, all right, what else is going to happen? They find a friend in a doctor who has been exiled because of his connection to some of the more uh, loyal people to Borsavi. Mm-hmm. They decide that they're all going to work together to get Borsavi, and the doctor is going to do everything he can to help them. And then there's a plague ship that all of a sudden shows up out of nowhere. And that's the end of Act 3. And that's the end of Act 3. Although, I'm going to say it again, and believe me or don't believe me, but I also called the plague ship. I'm thinking... Plague ship Why is there a plague ship There's not a plague ship They're probably lying There's no plague Mm -hmm. And then later it turns out We'll cover it next week Later it turns out Yeah there is no plague ship This is all part of The great king's 22 year Thought out Freaking revenge ruse Because he has some butt hurt If anybody had a case of it This guy
0: I mean when your whole Family gets murdered
1: Yeah Seems a little justified Just saying Sure but like when you start trying to eradicate a whole city and kids because some granddad got a knife to the chest, Ed, you've lost my sympathy.
0: Sure, you 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 missed a spot though that the um, the Gray King's sisters were in on it, and they were yeah, you know, the servants of Copper Brasave. Right, that's his a good key, one. Uh, his key entertainers.
1: Yes, that was a really good twist. That I didn't see at all, and that was. Very exciting to watch that happen. And it was also exciting to watch them get access to the face. I think that happens in the next section. But anyway. Spoiler alert. That yeah. In the next thing. We'll, we'll yeah. cover it again. I'll, well, I'll still be very happy about it. You'll still ac- be happy about it. Right? Yeah.
0: I got that. One of the things that I really enjoyed was, uh, so Locke, you said Locke passes out on the bridge, right? And there's this recurring moment of that Locke, we see in his interludes, where it's like, I don't have to beat you. I just have to wait for Jean to arrive. Mm-hmm. And even that moment of like Jean picking him up reaffirms that in a less um
1: less uh pronounced way. Thank you. Yeah. That's yeah, what I meant that's Absolutely. What I'm I agree. That that's it, Which is fun. amazing. But it like as
0: much as I love killing off characters in a book, man, I feel like there was so much more you could have done with the Sansa twins and Bug But it's Lynch's first published book, so I imagine, you know, one of the ways that, and we're both in marketing, one of the ways that you get attention is by doing something brash that most people don't do, is doing something outside of the norm, right? Well, killing 60% of the crew, that's a little brash. And even though we didn't have the length of time with the characters that we might have liked, we got enough interludes from the past about
1: how they were raised that it feels like, we had a stronger connection with them. I agree with the second, the last part of your point. But I think if I'm Lynch and I'm telling a story about Lamora and his lies and how they and his hubris have gotten them into trouble, and we start out, th- these are almost like bookends. We start out with his hubris killing his friends, and we end with hubris killing his friends. Okay. And so that's fair. I'm a fan of killing off characters, too. And I think here, the sacrifice, if for lack of a better term, of these three characters, as much as I liked Bug, it needed to happen from a storytelling perspective. Emotions out of it, reader attachment out of it, mm-hmm. cold, calculated storytelling, twins and Bug <laughs> had to go. And I hope in the second book, this is the next arc or the next catapult of Locke's growth. He needs to adjust or readjust or... This will be eating at him, so this will maybe push him to do other things, maybe that are foolish. We'll see. I haven't gotten mm-hmm. that far in book two, but a thing was necessary. I didn't see Bug dying. I thought he, I thought the twins are going to die, and Bug some kind is going to get injured, maybe badly, and then they have to walk around with you know Bug bleeding out and trying to help save him. I didn't see both the throat and him dying in Locke's arms. That was intense.
0: Yeah, and you know honestly. I think you're right on the killing the Sansa twins and doing a bit of a bookend thing, especially with like the the beginning of the book having Locke, quote-unquote, accidentally getting kids killed. I think you're right, but I also would have liked Bug to like maybe survive. Huge injury, lose an arm or something like that. Deeply injured afterward, couldn't go and help with the current plan. But it ties into, and here's another spoiler alert, is it ties into the death offering that Locke convinces the bourgeoisie to commit with the flagship yep. later, which we'll get into on the next episode. But I want to circle back a second because that was that was a really good point. I want to circle back and ask you, it's your first read-through, right? And you mentioned this to me offline, like this was a real page-turner. So, like, walk yep. me through the emotional journey you went through, act one, act two, act three. It doesn't need to be in-depth necessarily, but I did what I normally do where I'm like, hey, you're going to love this book. And you go, eh, okay. I mean, you're, you. there's a little evidence to this now because a lot of the books I've
1: recommended, you're like, okay, these are good. Well, five for five. All bullshit outside, the five books that you've recommended, I've liked. Now, I think you like Sanderson more than I do. Yeah, but I'm 20 books deep. So, like, I think that it'll grow on you. It,
0: and it's different than this book. It's different.
1: There's always a, a subjective part to these sort of things because even if I didn't like Sanderson, that wouldn't take away from him being a good writer. But sure. everything you've suggested, not only do I think, okay, this is good because the writing's well done, and I have my own opinions and understandings of what the literature should be, and this by those standards is good. Outside mm-hmm. of that, I've actually enjoyed every single book that you've suggested. Right. So to answer your question, I couldn't tell you that there was these emotions that I felt and name them like one, two, three. But I can tell you this, from the beginning of the prelude, I was like, ooh, this kid, he's being (laughs) sold. And he's done something so terrible that this grouchy old thief maker is trying to get rid of him. Now, this is a good hook. Mm -hmm. And then just into the stratosphere right away, meaning that there's not a lull in the story ever. I found myself wanting to know more about young Locke. And so as I would get little interludes and as we get little glimpses of Locke's youth and him growing up, and then we're transported back to the so-called present day, and things are just moving at such a fast pace, my emotional response was just sitting in the edge of my seat. The story was interesting as just a heist story. Just, just by itself, there's these guys, and they're trying to do a heist, and they have to escape the other guys in the thieving world are trying to get him great plot oh they made ten thousand movies like that already, I'm sure, and I think I watched you know at least a hundred of them. Enjoy it, <laughs> but here it's the world that's unique, religious system that's unique, which I have a question for you later on, and these characters that have to beat almost unbeatable odds, and you're with them going like, "Oh crap, how does Logun to come out of this one? Oh. Well, obviously, Locke just goes into doing his shit with wi- eyes wide open, and you know, stiletto in his uh, in his hand, and walks into trouble or problems or whatever. And part of it's hubris, part of it's confidence, part of it's him being you know Camori and totally insane. <laughs> and you're with this; you're in a car ride, right? So, what what can you say about the emotions you feel if you are? in a car with somebody who's taking out light poles and going through cornfields and just hit a lady with a, you know, with a, with a walker. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The emotions that I was feeling, it was one emotion. I was just like, wow, I want to know what happens next. It was uh, intrigue. I was intrigued. And i like the characters. I like the characters. So you want them to succeed. You don't want a book to die. You want Locke to get out of this, and you're watching him, you know, throw up, and (laughs) just the complete insanity that that scene was, after he took the epiquette, and then as he's barely alive, getting the snot kicked out of him by Barsavi's men, and one of Barsavi's sons says, this is for Locke Lamora, and punches him in the teeth. Yeah. You're like, come on, man. Like, what else (laughs) could happen to Locke that hasn't happened yet? So... I can't give you an emotion I felt, but the immersion into this world was uh, was fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in a previous episode. If it was offline, I apologize, audience, where part of the reason that this fantasy book feels unique is because it's set in like 15th century Italy, you know, Venice. It's like, I don't know of another book that has brought us to Venice. I've read a lot of fantasy books and They have brought us to medieval England and faraway lands and places that are like medieval England, but not medieval England. But I I don't know of any that have brought us to Italy, which is why I think it stands out. And the naming structures are good. The streets, you know, they take a gondola to to turn in the the jewelry to Barsavi's pawn person, pawn shop person, whatever. And it's just like, it was, it's immersive. It's immersive, Right. But yeah. I have a question. So and this and it's going to be another emotion question because I'm trying to to understand more of what elements of a book really capture your emotional investment with these characters. So you talked about Young Locke and we had part of this conversation offline where I was like, you know, what are some of these books that you've liked the theme that it seems like has come about at least from my perspective in the books that I've recommended is you like young characters who are thrust into situations where they have to survive mm-hmm. and they're characters who take action, right? Cause you really liked Siri. You
1: really liked young Locke.
0: I thought, was there a third one you mentioned uh, of characters that you really liked?
1: Siri, young Locke. And then, yeah, it was another, Did you of, like both a lot or did you find
0: him annoying? I can't remember.
1: I found him annoying. I liked, um, it was another female character from Sanderson the it wasn't Vivina, I know that. No, it wasn't Vivina. It was um, her his her brother liked Shallan, to torture you animals. Like, you, you like Shalon? Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, non balot, holding <laughs> arms off We're not done with him yet, but
1: freaking a psychopath. Yeah. Yes, I like coming of age stories, and I like young characters that are thrust into a situation that is maybe harrowing that they need to get out of. Mm-hmm. It's something that has life or death consequences that kind of stuff i like a lot mm-hmm. and i resonate and identify with characters that take action and it just happens to be that two of the books that you suggested those characters happen to be female sure. and i've just identified That's with fine. them uh, yeah well yeah i'm not defending myself I, I don't care i am who i am i like these female characters <laughs> a real ladies man yes yes i am I like those characters because they are thrust into a situation that almost seems unbeatable and they make it out. Like yeah. Siri with the God King, the Blue Fingers or Blue Butt, whatever his uh, the blue name butt is. That's what we'll call him. Blue Butt. Blue Butt Fingers. Siri and Shalan. And here we have Locke and John. All of them had to overcome great odds at an early age. Mhm. And I'm captivated by that. Especially if I find bits of myself in those characters, like definitely with Siri and definitely some stuff with Locke. I can see a little bit of me in them. So then it's easier to identify. Then you have more of a stake in the story. You're like, "Oh wow, what's going to happen to Siri? Is she going to is she going to best blue fingers or what's going to happen to Locke? Is he going to get out of the situation or what?" Yeah, do you think that part of the reason you resonate with these characters is due to your upbringing? Absolutely, yeah. Any first year uh, psych student could figure it out, right? It's absolutely that. I don't know if I should be insulted that you called me a first year
0: psych student, or if I should take it as a compliment. will I'll just yes. choose to take it as a. Okay, all right, <laughs> great, thanks. That's um, here for you, buddy. Yeah, uh, apparently. Hashtag I don't
1: bro code. Or, uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, bro code. Okay, sure. We'll go with that. Um, okay, do you? Were there any quotes that you really enjoyed from this uh, this section?
1: Yes, it is very emotional kind of thing where Locke realizes that you know he got his friends killed. I promise you a death offering, brothers. I promise you an offering that will make the gods themselves take notice. This I swear to chains who kept us safe. I beg your forgiveness that I failed to do the same. Like that was a very, quite honestly, a very moving section of the book. That's the only thing that I put down in our episode notes as a quote, Mm -hmm. because that was, there's nothing else, nothing else to follow. If you keep this for the last quote, or you front load this quote, that's it. That's the section. That's all that needs to be uh, quoted. Locke will accomplish this, right? Mm -hmm. He will fulfill a second death offering. At the end of the book, I I think just a powerful, uh, powerful section. I think it speaks to
0: Locke's character growth, where he really only grows when he's forced to grow. And I think that that should take. and, And I know that that's something that we all kind of go through. Right. But I think that with Locke, because of his level of hubris, he's never he isn't proactively choosing to grow. And this is a theme that will come back in the subsequent books. I don't remember book two as clearly as I remember book three, but there are certainly things that happen where he could have chosen to grow, but instead he keeps relying on his old faithful, which is what I'd call his intuition or I would call his you – know, I think hubris also makes work, makes
1: sense. but Yeah, because you can have good intuition, but an overinflated view of yourself – Yeah, it leaves you open to risk because you're not looking for the
0: areas of risk. Yeah. Which then gets your friends killed. Well, as we covered. So, all in all, great section. Yes. Really good, not good, a great, strong first book in a series. Absolutely. Just super strong. And to your point, it might be the strongest first book that I've ever read. I hesitate because I think that it did a better job than Warbreaker in some ways. But I also really, really love warbreaker they're both good they're both great books because they're both good they're just different and yeah you know reasons that i love warbreaker book one is because of asher and nightblood right and reasons that i love the lies of Locke Lamora is it's so unique and immersive and the characters and the upped ante and just all the stuff we covered right so both very great first books for different reasons
1: yeah for sure now as we land this plane, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but something I mentioned earlier, and if I don't ask it now, I think it'll get just lost. So, what did you think about the religion system in uh, in the book? Because if I had one complaint, this would be it, but I wouldn't rewrite anything uh-huh. or I wouldn't even take away points from the scale that which will we'll do the last episode. Uh-huh. Do you think that the religion system was explained enough or not enough? Are you, I think this is a
0: good question. I think that I'm winning you over because I think that you're starting to fall in love with world building in hmm. closer. Yeah, that's right. Grown, grown a little bit. Um, <laughs> world building where you're like, oh, man, I kind of want to know more about this thing. So is that is that what we're alluding to here, Slava? It's
1: ever so slightly.
0: Indelibly. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, yeah, you could put your out. hubris in a box, and you can shove it down a river in a, a river barrel of horse piss. piss. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so to answer, we'll answer, answer the question.
1: Answer the question, and I'll have my own comments.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's underexplained, but it's also perfect. And- the reason I say that is because you get all the information you need to for how the religious system works in context of the world, and we have the main characters acting on that thing, and it's not a forefront topic, but it is a background topic that continues to come up at the right moments, from the ceremonies of them having dinner together to the beginning where they make a death offering to the second death offering that happens in Act 4. It comes up, and, and then, like, the using it as a bargaining chip with the bourgeoisie when he's like, hey, I need to go do these things. And the best lies, and I think they cover this in Act 4, the best lies are the ones that are littered with truth. Right? Oh, yeah. And then Danya Vercenza, we'll get into this in Act 4, but she's like, Locke was honest with us when he was telling us that he was a priest of the Crooked Warden. And she has this realization about what the, the death offering was and stuff like that. So, like... It's a perfectly used storytelling tool, which is why it's explained enough to be perfect, but it's underexplained because, as I have been trying to subtly lure you in with, like, good world-building, makes you want more. Like, when I was with Roadside Picnic, it's like, I want another three novels of this thing, like, and they can all be vignettes. I just want to know more because the, the author has captivated me with
1: wanting to know, like, Give me more of this world. So uh, that's my answer. What are your thoughts? That's a good answer. And my answer is the same. Like, I kind of set it up in a way where you might think or somebody might think my answer is going to be different. But it's literally the same. It's underexplained. Yes, I would like to know more. But as I say that, I am perfectly aware that if he spent a chapter's worth of pages explaining even two of the gods... In more detail or even the crooked warden in more detail it wouldn't add to the story and i might get a little bored because that would be the lull that you know takes away from the action anyway i thought that was a good question because it forced us to maybe take a stance that hey maybe scott lynch didn't write that great of a book he did but it was one of those kind of like let's throw this wrench into the gears and see what comes out but i'm glad that we're on the same page so speaking of lynch and his storytelling ability did you
0: notice how much, I don't know how to how to phrase this question well, but this will be the question we end on. How do you think Lynch did with his foreshadowing? Did you notice when he talked about, like, birds in the first act? No. It was like a sentence here, a sentence there, or like a figure in the background, and then it gets back into the action?
1: I didn't notice that until they were referenced again mm. in later scenes. So he probably did better than I think. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't notice is I was listening to the audio book, and sometimes you lose when you're listening to the audio book. Yeah, that's fair. So the Sanderson stuff and the Will White stuff, I have Kindle companions, so I will listen and read on the bus, and I get more retention Mm, that way. That's nice. Maybe I should have done that. Maybe I'll just buy this and the second book. I'll buy the Kindle versions too, so it'll help with retention. But I didn't notice... Those foreshadowing pieces until they were revealed later via internal dialogue or dialogue in general between the characters
0: and here's the thing that's fair the first I think two times I read the book I didn't notice it I, I noticed it this time I was like, oh shoot like he he mentioned a thing about when they're when they're performing the first part of the ruse with the Silvaras and bug is like, oh there was this big bird that was flying around and then there's like another moment where you know there's this figure in the background looming and then it's back into the action and this goes to what we just talked about a minute ago with the world building where part of the way that you you do good world building is show the action or the characters acting out what's true in the world like the religious system and showing that there's this bird and this bonds mage that are looming over but like clearly doesn't want to be noticed but is still shown in the narrative and then subconsciously it leads us to go oh shoot like that's brilliant because he gave us a snippet here and a snippet there building up to the reveal for sure so i think that lynch has i don't know another way to say this i think he mastered foreshadowing i think it's subtle which it should be and it leads to the reveal. Which gives us the emotional payoff of like, oh my god, that's great, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 100%.
1: Exciting. I think that's an excellent place to end. Because next week, we have Act 4, which is full of the funnest of fun. Yes. And the best of revenges and stabbies. So that's next week. I can't wait. And then what happens after Part 4? We might have a guest episode for you. Probably we'll have a guest episode. We have a guest episode for you. Okay, we'll have a guest episode. And what book are we reading next? But we're going to read The Hobbit. Oh, yes. We're going to have a
0: new guest on for The Hobbit. Yeah. Excited about that. I grew up reading Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and I still actually on my, he- my shelf have audiobook cassette tapes of The Hobbit. It might have been my first audiobook, actually, back when I was a kid. So more on that when we discuss The Hobbit. But I have a question about the guest episode, Slava. Are we having a, a return guest from your side?
1: I think we have two. Returning guests, and yes, Jess of Survivor fame, hey, is coming back. She texted me, and she said, "So, when are you recording the Liza Lacamonora guest episode?" And I was like, "Well, what do you mean?" She's like, "I'm, <laughs> pa- I'm on page thirty. I just want to know when you guys are recording." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah, you can come back if you want. I suppose." <laughs> do you has she given you any snippets of um
0: of like how she's enjoying it, like? I honestly when I asked her if she wanted to be on at the end of the Survivor episode, I wasn't sure she didn't sound like she was committed to fantasy, which is fine, like it's not for everybody, but it sounded like if she has actually shoplifted before, you know, no judgment, but it's this strikes me as the type of book that someone might want to read if that were the case. I think she's going to be
1: on. I'm 99% sure.
0: Love it. I'm excited. I I can't wait. I'm I thought we had a really great discussion on Survivor and would love We did. And you know me, I love getting other people to read books for the first time so we can it gives me a new perspective to take the book in that's fun that's that's an enjoyable thing which is why we did the the way of kings thing so you know maybe you get her to read the way of kings next
1: (laughs) yep yep
0: anyway we won't keep you here any longer adventurers be sure to subscribe follow along so that you never miss a
1: side quest